Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode, we take a look at the caste system that began on the Indian subcontinent some two millennia ago. That system as it evolved has often been compared to the structures of racial oppression in the US. In her book, Ants Among Elephants, An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India, author Sujata Gidla writes a memoir of caste by telling the story of her own Dalit family. Speaking with New Labour Forum editor-at-large Kafwi Atto, Gidla suggests she found some of the motivation and courage to write this personal account through witnessing African-Americans' acts of resistance to racism. A resident of the United States since age 26, Gidla completed the writing of the book while working as a New York City train conductor and member of Local 100 of the Transit Workers Union. For all these reasons, we're thrilled to bring you this conversation. Welcome, Sujata. Thank you so much for doing this and for writing just a really fantastic and compelling book. I loved reading it and it was eye-opening in all sorts of different ways. So thank you for that. Thank you. And it's nice to be here. I know there are probably people in the audience who have read the book, but there's probably even more who have not. So I thought we'd just start out with some kind of general questions to give them a taste of what is in the book, and then also to encourage them to actually buy it themselves and read it, read the whole thing. So maybe if, if we could start with just a question about motivations, arguments. So if not the central argument of the book, what are you know some of the, the questions that are driving the book or motivated you to to write it? The motivation has always been there uh, ever since I was nine or ten years old. I would see the elders, the uh, grown-ups in my family, like standing up and wringing their hands when an upper caste person would pass by. And it used to be very insulting to me that why they should be so servile. But I couldn't ask them, why are we socially inferior despite our parents being highly educated and having respectable jobs and all that stuff? And it's very hard to understand. And somehow I knew that I couldn't ask that question. There is some shame involved in it. So I never asked anybody, why is it that we are treated like this? Why are we being seen as inferiors? So I was in India until I was 26 years old, but I did not have the courage to ask these questions. And so when I came to America, the circumstances changed because one, anybody in America who's not a South Asian does not understand caste. 
let alone know about it. If I tell them that like I'm uh, of inferior caste, they don't understand what's involved in that. Some of them would even laugh, you know, whoa, what do you mean? Like, you're like anybody else. Yes, it's true that for non-South Asians, I'm no different from any other Indian. So uh, talking to these people, it gave me some confidence that I could openly talk about these questions, caste and social status. And the second set of circumstances is witnessing the situation, condition of Black people in America. And there is Black oppression in America and untouchability in India. You know, they have the same kind of characteristics like segregated housing. The Jim Crow is gone, but Unofficially, the, the discrimination still continues. And then there is this taboo against interracial marriage. All of these things would make anyone, any Indian think immediately of untouchability. But then there are some differences also. Black people in America don't hide the fact that they're Blacks unless they don't even have an opportunity to hide. There is that skin color difference. And also they're, you know, they talk openly about racism. They make jokes about racism. They make jokes about being black. They make jokes about on white people. We in India, the untouchables don't have that kind of confidence. We still conduct ourselves as blacks would have conducted themselves in the Jim Crow South. So I wanted to know why they went up to that stage and untouchables are still down here. But black history, it tells you why they're oppressed. They're oppressed because their ancestors were slaves and the stigma of slavery continues. And this history started 400 years back because they were brought from Africa as slaves. But I don't know, and we don't know why, where we came from, what accounts for our social inferiority. Uh, you know, Blacks came from Africa. Where did we come from? And they were slaves. Were we slaves to begin with? So these questions came up and I, I thought that I should look into them. As I said, I got bold enough to ask these questions openly. And so I asked my family, my mother and my uncle, where did we come from? I didn't know anybody before my grandparents' generation. So when they started talking about it, it came as a revelation and extremely interesting stories. And I started writing them down. It's as much a memoir as it is a history of of modern India, that is through your family or through your family history, you can see all sorts of tensions and conflicts, the tensions and conflicts that defined development of India as a modern state. So one of the questions I wanted to ask that's kind of more general is what, what do you think your own family, the history of your family tells us about the history of modern India? And especially as a Dalit family, looking through that perspective, how does it reframe how we think about, you know, India as a, as a modern state. In the introduction to my book, uh, I wrote that a person's caste is his life and his life is his caste. That's a very, very fundamental identity of an Indian. When you look at caste, everything is connected to politics. Politics is nothing but concentrated economics. And that is, it's about class and what class you are in, in the society and what kind of relationship you have to the means of production. And caste is really, if you look at caste, caste names are same as the words for certain occupations, like 
you know, uh, Kumari is the name of a caste, but it also means cotter. Similarly, Kumari is the name of a caste, but it also means blacksmith. So it's kind of like caste is a form of class in, in feudal agrarian uh, Indian society. The things that happen to you, the things that you do are influenced by the society around you. Uh, therefore, things that happen to you and things that you do are linked to politics. Circumstances mold people. You know, there is no escaping it. In many ways, I think your book and then also the essay that you recently uh, wrote with Alan Horn kind of make make exactly that point, which is instead of seeing caste or untouchability as you know, a trans-historical category, it, it's important to place it within a broader political economic context to see castes in connection with the division of labor in a particular yeah. society and in a particular moment of time. And in some yeah. cases, caste seems in the contemporary society of a feudal holdover or something yeah. like a, a category that it existed and had a purpose at one point, but has transformed into something now that is that exists but exists in a, in a different way i want to say that uh it's a holdover yes that is true from uh, uh the past uh caste was division of labor and laborers as well and that suited the agrarian forms of production in india and it continues but even now it still has an economic purpose even if it's not agrarian and feudal it still has a very central significance politically. And this is the case for racism in India, in America also. Blacks were slaves and that's the slavery plantations required unskilled laborers that are put to hard labor. That's the kind of labor that was needed that served a direct economic interest of the plantation owners. But now, and in Jim Crow also, it served a purpose because it kept Blacks segregated and it kind of made them inferior and it kind of extracted nearly free labor from them after having dismantled slavery. And even now racism serves a purpose, if not directly like a direct reason like in slavery, but it's, it serves as division of laborers and prevents them from getting together in struggling for their common economic interests. And that's the biggest problem that's in America now, that the labor cannot come together on the basis of racial lines. And white workers identify with the white rulers instead of with black workers. So it is like, you can say it's the bedrock of American capitalism. And it serves the same purpose, untouchability serves the same purpose in India. One, to divide laborers. And it also works to subject untouchables to super exploitation in agriculture. Agriculture is still you know, not organized on an industrial basis. So there is some feudal elements in it. And it's an excuse for the landlords to say, this is your caste and it's your duty to serve us. And so don't demand wages and uh, do what we tell you and that is the economic interest that still continues in india and that perpetrates perpetuates untouchability it seems as though identifying with one's own specific caste may or may not 
get in the way of larger pan-Dalit solidarity. How useful is the idea for you of pan-Dalit identity and, and solidarity? You know, uh, there is this problem in Indian communist movement where the communists refuse to recognize the reality of caste. And their explanation is that Marx never talked about caste. He talked about class only. So uh, we should not talk about caste. And caste oppression will automatically go away once we achieve the class struggle, success of the class struggle. And that is not, the, that is not how it is in India. Caste oppression is a very big reality and caste oppression is the central question of Indian society. And the communist parties, because of their egalitarian ideas, they're naturally, Dalits are naturally attracted to those parties, but they're disappointed and disillusioned because the communist parties are not taking up the question of caste and untouchability. So untouchables became separate. And now we have Dalit movement starting in 1980s after you know brutal massacres of untouchables in various parts of India. But the problem with them is that they became anti-communist, they became anti-Marxist, and they don't even tolerate the talk of working class struggles. And that's a big problem with them. And my uncle, what he sought to do was to combine Marxism and class struggle with class caste struggle and Ambedkarism. Ambedkar is, um, was the undisputed leader of the untouchables in India, who was a contemporary of Hindu and visceral enemy of Gandhi. So he tries to combine Marxism and Ambedkarism, but I think it's wrong because although Ambedkar was, he devoted his life to untouchables and all that stuff, but he always said that the best possible society is capitalism. And he rejected Marxism. And so it, it's not, they're mutually exclusive. Marxism, class struggle, and Ambedkarism are mutually exclusive. And Ambedkar's ideas are that we should ask for parliamentary reforms to better the condition of the Dalits. So even though he did try to combine it, I don't think it would work. And I think that Pan Dalit is not feasible because recently I went to Punjab to talk with the family of a victim of lynching. And they were so surprised that somebody from South India would come and talk to them, which wasn't anything strange to me. For them, like, I'm a Dalit, but I came from South India. and why would you come to uh, talk to us? What commonness do we have? Dalits are there everywhere, but they don't really identify with Dalits from other parts of the country. And in India, there is no struggle that can succeed without taking up caste question. Like if workers want to struggle for their economic interests without taking up the caste question, they cannot win their uh, struggle because there's a, an example in 1928, there was a huge textile industry worker strike in 1928. And it was a huge militant strike and it also was anti-colonial, but it did not succeed because the Dalits crossed the picket lines. And they crossed the picket lines because the working class, the trade unions did not take up the Dalit question and Dalits found it, why should we support this strike? So working class would never succeed in their struggles without taking up the test. 
and untouchables cannot succeed without the help of the working class because the working class is the one that has the social power to run the society. So they are mutually dependent and they should recognize that. So switching gears a bit and taking up the issue of gender, Dalit women are one of, if not one of the most oppressed groups in, in India and are vulnerable to all forms of mistreatment and sexual violence. Can you talk a bit more about that and talk a bit about the challenges in terms of sexual violence that Dalit women often face, particularly from upper caste men trying to uphold the caste hierarchy? You can see that, you know, women always occupy the secondary position anywhere in the world, even in the communist, uh, so-called communist societies like China or former USSR. Women are still not equal to men. That was because there is property and the property is passed through male lineage. So that exists as long as there is private property. But, But there is the struggles of women in the West are typically like, equality at work and opportunities for promotions and sexual harassment at work and these kind of things. But in India, there is this extra aspect of extreme women's oppression in India. And what explains this extra oppression of women in India in South Asia is caste. Caste is why South Asian women are more oppressed, may way, way, way more oppressed than women in the West because it's inextricably linked with caste. Caste is division of laborers. And if, if this division disappears, then the castes disappear. And in order to keep the castes demarcated clearly, inter-caste marriages are forbidden. If a, a, a woman marries from a different caste, then what will the offspring be? Will it be, you know, upper caste or lower caste? And that was the problem even in Jim Crow that, you know, the interracial marriages were forbidden. It was a law. And the, the reason is that to maintain the integrity of caste, you have to maintain endogamy. You have to marry only within your group. And so this aspect, in order to prevent women from choosing their mates, is the basis for the brutal oppression of women in India. So uh, a high value is placed on the sexual chastity of women. You know, this is the highest honor and her chastity determines the honor of the the, the family, the honor of their caste, the honor of uh, their village and all of that. It's a huge deal. So in India, the chastity of women has very high value. So if you want to insult somebody, if you want to hurt somebody really bad, you will take the most valuable thing from them. And so that means that sexual violation of the women of the the rival group. So sexual violence is uh, a form of punishment or political punishment against people. So Dalit women are most vulnerable because any resistance from the Dalits, it, it retaliated and the brunt of it is taken by the Dalit women. If the man asks for wages, and the landlord doesn't like his audacity, he will send people to rape his women because the women's chastity is the high, has the highest value and violating it is the most hurtful thing for the family. Rape is used as political violence. In Kashmir, the Indian occupying Indian military was told to rape 
women, Kashmiri women. And that's what they do in Northeast where they're you know, struggling for self-determination and autonomy. Focus on uh, the parallels that you drew early on between the, the relationship between Black Americans in the U.S. and and one of those questions is, is about passing. That is in at least in the uh, U.S. Yeah, context. Passes, yeah. yeah, I mean, I can't pass, <laughs> but there are people. <laughs> there are people who are yeah. phenotypically yeah. able to pass, and so is that a reality for? Is that true for Dalits? Very much. I am the one, an example of that, because typical Dalit is supposed to be landless and a laborer and living in segregated colonies and be poor and wear loin clothes instead of proper clothes. This is the condition of a typical Dalit, having black skin color. So all of these things, being poor, being landless, being living in a segregated colony and having certain kind of last names, these are all markers for untouchables, just as the skin color is for Black people. And if the skin color of Black people is like, if they pass for white person, they are able to pass. And having white skin and white features is what I am, because I'm not poor, I'm educated, I can speak English, I don't live in a village working as a land laborer. So all of this enables me, you know, gives there is a possibility for me to pass. And this is the situation that educated Dalits like me face. They're like everybody else, but then they're inferior for no reason. And so we face the additional problem of talking about us with other people. If, if, we, if we talk about our lives, we will have to say, oh, we eat beef or we'll say we're Christians, or we'll say so-and-so is my, are the uh, customs in our marriage. These all tell my caste. And so if I tell my stories to anybody, they will immediately know that I am from an untouchable caste. So we have to keep quiet. We cannot talk about ourselves. And if people ask us, we are at loss to say what we are. Should we lie that we're Brahmins or... Should we tell them the truth? If you tell them the truth, you risk being ridiculed and harassed and even driven to suicide as happens often, often, very often in universities. For example, the University of Hyderabad, there is one untouchable suicide every year and they're harassed because they're known as untouchables because they have these surnames and, and they're beneficiaries of, of scholarships and the affirmative action, these all tell them, tell others that they're untouchable. And if you don't tell them what they will try to find with by other means, they, they will ask like somebody from your village or from your town, or they will ask questions like, what are your customs in your, in your weddings and things like that. So in either case, you cannot talk about your past. And it's a thing that is faced by adults like me. And there is a book that came after my book, which is called Coming Out as Dalit. This woman pretended to be a Brahmin all her life. And all her friends, they, they even changed their surname. All her life, she told everybody either directly or you know, implying that she's a Brahmin. And suddenly she came out as a Dalit. And it, it came to her just as it happened to me here coming to America, seeing black people and their struggles and their confidence and what they achieved. 
and she thought it's not necessary to hide anymore. Yeah, that happens to educated Dalits. And the worst thing that we fear is being outed. Being outed is what we really fear. It's like uh, they consider you Brahmins and when it comes, comes out, the way their attitude changes is like unbearable to, to us, you know. And that happened in America, in, uh, I don't know, San Francisco or somewhere, in Cisco, the Brahmin team leader in IT, he kept threatening the untouchable that he would out him and he would deny him promotion opportunities, pay rises, and all of that stuff. So uh, this outing is a big thing and it is used as a weapon against us. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your great book. And I really enjoyed it. And I encourage everyone to get a copy. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Issues like those raised in today's podcast form the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.